Get ready to laugh out loud at the Tribeca Festival, June 5th to June 16th in NYC. Experience hilarious talks, comedy specials, and feel-good films with your fan-favorite comedians like Hannah Einbinder, Judd Apatow, Neil Patrick Harris, Tig Notaro, and more. You have to be there. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com. Did you know the Tribeca Festival showcases more than just film and TV? Tribeca's audio storytelling program, sponsored by Audible, is happening June 9th to June 13th in NYC. It includes premieres of new indie podcasts, plus exclusive live tapings of popular podcasts like Slow Burn, Criminal with special guest Melissa McCarthy, and Vibe Check with special guest Lena Waith. Don't miss it. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com. We don't have the buildings that were built by women or the food that was cooked by women or the comedy that was written and performed by women. We, we can't imagine what the world would have looked like if this systemic behavior hadn't been in place. Hello and welcome to the Ezra Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. My guest this week is Rebecca Traster, who is a writer at New York Magazine, uh, the author of a number of great books and a forthcoming book, as she mentions, on female rage and American politics. I've been wanting to talk to Rebecca for quite a while uh, at this point. I'd want to talk to her after the campaign because I think she has done a better job covering gender and politics than just about anyone out there. Uh, But then as the sexual harassment story has exploded through American life, I think her writing and her insight on this has been really, really essential. We cover a lot of ground in this podcast, and it's definitely made me think about a lot of this differently. Um, her her points about power reversals and the ways when marginalized groups begin to take power, uh, the, the the way they use that power is reacted to with more fear and more loathing on, on the part of the majority is, I think, a pretty unusual and important insight in all this. Uh, as always, a couple quick requests. Check out our other podcasts, Weeds, and I Think You're Interesting, and The Impact with Sarah Cliff. Um, and Worldly, uh, where we do foreign affairs. It's a great lineup. And continue to email me your guest suggestions, your feedback, your comments at EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. All that said, here is Rebecca Traster. Rebecca Traster, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. I'm happy to be here. So let me start here. Why do you think the Harvey Weinstein unleashed this much cultural change and reevaluation? I think there are a couple of reasons. I'm I'm in the midst of working on a book about women and anger and politics and social change. So I'm probably particularly attuned to this, but I I don't think that my own natural interests are taking me too far afield here. I think that the amount of anger that has built up not only over generations and lifetimes, right, which is a lot of what we're seeing right now, but that has built up in particular over the past couple years and even more intensely over the past year since the election of Donald Trump. I think that there were people who just were ready to explode. And so I think that's one element of it. But there was a moment not totally unlike this, although now this has been so sustained over a period of six weeks or so and so explosive that I think we can say um, that this is a much bigger 
instance. But when it started, it felt very familiar to me um, from the from the experience we had right before the 2016 election when Donald Trump was um, caught on tape talking about uh, how you can grab women by the pussy if you're famous enough. Um, and then there were all of these women who came forward with really detailed accounts of um, the way that he had sexually assaulted or harassed them. And there was fury then. There was absolutely fury. Um, and there were hashtag campaigns. And I, I had many conversations with men saying, wow, I had no idea how pervasive this was. I had no idea that the women in my life had all experienced this, been groped or harassed or catcalled. You know, I had lots of those conversations and it felt like a really instructive kind of turning point moment. And then Donald Trump got elected president. And it was it served as this sort of um, metaphor for actually a workplace experience that's familiar to so many women, which is the the terrible guy getting the bigger job. Um, there being actually no punishment, no repercussion, um, even when the behavior is exposed, even when you file a complaint to HR, if you're lucky enough to have an HR department, even when you um, tell what happened to you, there's no punishment. There's there's no repercussion. And of course, we've seen a million other instances of that sort of popularly. Roger Ailes, Gabe Sherman had written about Roger Ailes' treatment of women. There had been, you know, no halt to his to his power over the media. Uh, Bill O'Reilly, you know, the suit that Andrea Macris had filed, filed against Bill O'Reilly had been public and written about. He kept his job making millions and wielding incredible political and social influence. Bill Cosby's accusers had been written about, had told their stories on the record, had filed a lawsuit. You know, he still continued to get all of these career awards and had a television show going. So there had been this pattern that is familiar sort of to people in all kinds of workplaces in which there's just no repercussion. No one cares. And then because the situation has felt so dire during the Trump administration, not just the situation in reference to sexual harassment or, or assault, but the larger impact of Donald Trump being president has felt like such a sort of steady state of emergency. And so many women have been so angry that I think there was just this moment where it was like, screw it, we're doing it this time. And then the Harvey story comes along and it blows open this space in in the news cycle for lots of people to tell their stories. And I think it didn't hurt that the Harvey story itself was so outsized. I mean, and I'm somebody who knew the Harvey Weinstein story via the Whisper Network and other reporters who tried to write it, you know, over the, over the years. I'd known about the Harvey story and I felt like I knew even some of the very bad stuff. And I had no idea exactly how sort of big screen violent and villainous it was. So I have 10,000 questions now. <laughs> OK, but, but I probably the, the just gave a 20 minute answer to what should have been no, like no, a this two was minute fantastic. answer. But okay. the first one that, that I want to ask is because I've been struggling with this question, too. If Donald Trump loses the election, mm-hmm. if he doesn't win Wisconsin and Michigan and Pennsylvania and Hillary Clinton prevails narrowly, do we have this moment? Yeah, probably not. Um, and I think about this all the time. I mean, I think about it. I think about it in terms of the women running for office right now. You know, I mean, look, I would rather be living in the world where Hillary Clinton is the president and you and I are sitting here talking about sort of the failures of her attempts at economic policy change. You know, I would rather be having all my conversations right now about the shortcomings of the Clinton administration, which is what we would be doing for good reason. On the other hand, 
when you look at the history of social change in this country and how it happens, we like to tell ourselves that we're in constant forward motion, um, that the story of, you know, righting America's wrongs has just been a kind of steady one where we've we've made corrections, corrections, corrections. That's obviously not the case. Um, the story of progress um, in the United States around gender inequity, racial inequity, uh, economic inequality, it's been circular, stop and start, and we are often moving backwards when we imagine we know enough to be moving forward. And I think this is an instance in which a horrifying and perilous backward move, the election of Donald Trump over Hillary Clinton, I think in the best case scenario, and I'm not saying that this is what's going to happen, but it's one possible outcome, winds up shooting us forward in the long term. Again, I'm not promising that that's going to be what happens, but it's one of the things. The other moment that I've I've compared this, and I'm, I'm not alone in this comparison, but I've been thinking about it really, really since it happened. The other moment that I think of as uh, really analogous to this is not just because of the sexual harassment conversation, but in terms of what a, a serious loss with long-term consequences, negative consequences, can bring about. Um, is the 1991 Clarence Thomas Supreme Court hearings and Anita Hill's testimony against Clarence Thomas claiming that he had sexually harassed her when they worked together. And that was an example of a loss in addition to Anita Hill being treated horribly by the um, all-white, all-male Senate Judiciary Committee led by Joe Biden, Clarence Thomas got confirmed to the Supreme Court. And not just that. I mean, the, the damage that Thomas has done on the Supreme Court in part, shapes our reality right now. I mean, the gutting of the Voting Rights Act, in part, helps us understand how Donald Trump is elected president. So the long-term negative backwards consequences of that sustained loss are, you, you can't, you, it, it's hard to wrap your head around sort of the long-term damage that's done. But on the other hand, what happens in response to that loss is another moment in which, in, in that case, women get very angry. 1992 becomes electorally the year of the woman. Anita Hill has spoken about how it's not just women elected to office. And that in 1992, four women are elected to the Senate, which is a record. I believe 23 women are elected to the House. At that point, that is unheard of, those numbers. And many of them, including Patty Murray and Carol Mosley Brown, who's the first African-American woman ever elected to the Senate. That's in 1992. And a lot of these women talk about how they ran for those seats in part because they were furious about the treatment of Anita Hill and that they saw in that all-white male judiciary that they weren't represented. So there's that. And then Anita Hill has talked about how that wasn't just in politics. It was in other professions that she spent the last 25 years hearing from women um, in all kinds of different professions who said, after your testimony, I was angry and resolved to change things and to change my own approach to my work life and to my pursuit of economic, social, and professional equality. And you see the, the term sexual harassment enter the lexicon, our understanding of what it means, altered at that point in a way that foregrounds and makes this moment possible. Can I actually have you go back and tell some of the Anita Hill story? Because this is one where I think people have a, a generalized sense that, that someone named Anita Hill testified against Clarence Thomas. But but for a lot of folks who were younger, were not paying attention that that closely to politics then, I think a lot of it is faded into the mist, uh, but 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 I've heard you talk about it before, and and I think the details of it are important here. So it's 1991, the fall of 1991. 
George H.W. Bush has nominated Clarence Thomas to fill the Supreme Court seat left empty by Thurgood Marshall. And um, he's going through his confirmation process. He's a very conservative um, African-American man. The Senate Judiciary Committee that is supposed to confirm him is led by Joe Biden. Um, it is it is all white men. There's sort of word that gets round that there is a woman who has a story about sexual harassment that she suffered, um, that she experienced while working with Clarence Thomas in the past. She is his peer, but he was also her boss. People tell very different stories about how exactly she came to testify. She wasn't thrilled about the idea of testifying against him. Um, she was sort of persuaded to testify against him. Um, it was not easy to think of, like, going and telling your story um, at that point. This was not, you know, this was not something that she was rushing to do. In fact, many of the women in the House, there were, there were women in the House who knew that Anita Hill had this story to tell, and they, there's an iconic photograph of them storming up the steps of the Capitol to interrupt the Senate judiciary and insist to Joe Biden that Anita Hill be able to testify. And, and according to lots of people, Joe Biden initially said no. I don't I want to keep this moving quickly. I, you know, this is going to take time and delay everything. I just want this to be smooth. And he resisted the idea of Anita Hill testifying. Um, But eventually he agrees. I believe it's a Friday in October of 1991. I, I mean, I remember where I was when I thought I was in high school. I was actually with my conservative grandparents in northern Maine. But it was one of those. It was also an event where back when there were only three television stations, sort of everybody was glued to this event. Um, And she tells the story of the way that Clarence Thomas behaved toward her in the workplace, including making references to a pubic hair on a can of Coke in the office, talking about his preferences in pornography. Um, In response to her story, which is clearly she's very clear, very precise in her recollections, the Senate Judiciary Committee responds to her with such disrespect. You know, many of the Republicans, they accuse her of something called suffering from erotomania, which is like a sexual delusion and desperation. They they call other witnesses who paint her as a kind of, because she was single, she was unmarried, an unmarried African-American woman, that she was desperately in love with Clarence Thomas and that this is some kind of revenge against him um, because she was her advances were spurned by him. You know, somebody suggests that she borrowed this story um, from The Exorcist, uh, that it was all fictionalized and this sort of sensationalist, account. David Brock, then a Republican journalist, characterizes her as a little bit slutty and a little bit nutty, which becomes the kind of wrap-up of how she was portrayed by Republicans during those hearings. Now, Democrats, meanwhile, don't defend her. They don't do anything. In fact, the guy who's on that committee, who should have been the most vocal, who's regarded as the person who should have been sort of on the side of right, pointing out that the treatment of this woman was ridiculous, is Ted Kennedy. And Ted Kennedy keeps his mouth shut during those hearings, in part because he has his own very public and very checkered past with women, and in part because at the very same time that those hearings are taking place, his nephew, William Kennedy Smith, is on trial for rape. And that rape took place on a night that began with William Kennedy Smith out drinking with his uncle Ted Kennedy. 
And that kind of renders Ted Kennedy mute on this. And so he doesn't defend her. The Democrats don't do anything, really, to ameliorate the terrible treatment she's getting at the hands of the Republicans. What's more, there are three other women who are willing to testify to corroborate her story. Joe Biden decides not to call them. So it's just Anita Hill who testifies. And she is trashed. She's trashed by the media, and Clarence Thomas is confirmed to the Supreme Court. And Anita Hill goes back. um, She's a law professor in Oklahoma, and she goes back to years of death threats, rape threats. Honestly, the threats and the sort of aspersions cast on Anita Hill lasted so long that just a few years ago, I believe in 2010, there was a story that Clarence Thomas's wife left a message on her work phone in 2010, 19 years after this has happened, telling her that, you know, she needs to apologize for her treatment of Clarence Thomas. So that's is that is that what you wanted as far as a recounting of the history? Yeah. And and so so you have this moment where where all this happens and the Democratic Party, which in, in theory is more open to these kinds of questions, complaints to in theory is more uh, committed to this kind of social progress. It's leading male politicians treat Anita Hill terribly. Then you have in 1992, the year of the woman in elections, but also Bill Clinton gets elected. Sure does. And Clinton himself, I mean, at the time, I think is seen as a flander. But subsequently, there's the Juanita Broderick uh, allegations, which I think are a pretty hard to dismiss accusation of rape or certainly an allegation of rape that has not been disproven right. uh, in any significant way. The the incredible abuse of power with Monica Lewinsky. Yep. And the, the Democratic Party coalesces around Clinton, too. Right. This is one of the horrors of that timing. So the other the other impact, I, I should be clear about what Anita Hill does when she testifies about sexual harassment. At that point, that behavior, the sort of sexual objectification and degradation of anybody, but it very often happens because men had more have more power than women in, in workplaces, is viewed as not just a sort of individualized behavioral thing, locker room talk, the way men are, but as a behavior, and this is the first time that we really start to grapple with this in the national conversation, a behavior that does material damage to women in the public sphere, women as a class. And this conversation is revelatory. And it does alter the left's view of the many ways that it needs to begin to address gender inequality. This, you know, 20 and 30 years after the women's movement has has, you know, sort of exploded gender relations in certain ways. Then Bill Clinton is elected. And it's complicated because there's true relief. It's been 12 years of Republican presidential administrations and also years in which the Republican Party has sort of melded with the religious right um, and done tremendous damage in eroding uh, women's reproductive rights, really focused on an anti-abortion movement that's grown hugely and is threatening abortion rights. And here's a president who is friendly to reproductive autonomy, who appoints Ruth Bader Ginsburg to the Supreme Court, who has a wife who, and this mattered, this was really important when Bill Clinton was elected in 92. The way the year of the woman initially corresponded to the election of Bill Clinton was that he had sold himself historically as part of a two-for-one presidency. Because his wife at that point was regarded, first of all, she was just unprecedented in terms of her comparable power or comparable credentials to her husband. She was a lawyer. She was a groundbreaking lawyer in Arkansas. Um, She was... She had worked for the Children's Defense Fund. She was seen as extremely politically and... um, 
seen then, I think, incorrectly, but seen as a real kind of left-wing radical and a feminist. And that didn't have precedence in the office of the First Lady. And feminists loved, many of them, loved Hillary Clinton. And the idea that her husband had sold them as equals was felt in its own way as kind of revolutionary. And so here's this guy, and feminists and many on the left have all kinds of reasons to love him. And then very quickly in these years, after we're having this new kind of conversation, his behavior with women works to erode the assuredness with which we're talking about all this stuff. And so you do have feminists. Gloria Steinem defended Bill Clinton in The New York Times, saying that the relationship with Monica Lewinsky did not count as sexual harassment. I think she was wrong about that. The Juanita Broderick story is is interesting because I think at the time, and I was in high school and college, I was in high school when Bill Clinton was elected and in college, and the degree to which I was engaged in this conversation was probably less than at any other time in my life. I sort of generally was like, yay, I love Bill Clinton. And that, you know, I wasn't, it wasn't the moment of extreme political engagement to me. So I'm not sure if I am... Um, speaking accurately about the general feeling in the media at the time. But I don't remember the Juanita Broderick allegations of rape being taken particularly seriously at the time, except by factions of the right wing. And that is symptomatic of, A, the way that many women's stories of assault are not taken seriously, and also with the sort of complexity of the moment. What was the left, you know, that should have been perhaps more engaged in determining whether or not there was any veracity there. You know, how are they going to approach this with a president who, I mean, partway through the term, the left left wasn't so thrilled with Bill Clinton. But this was a real quandary. I do remember the Monica story. And I remember understanding even at the time that while it was complicated because both people in it acknowledged that it was um, consensual, it was a tremendous abuse of power and therefore, I think, absolutely fell in the category of sexual harassment. He was the president of the United States. She was an intern in the White House. But that conversation didn't happen in earnest. And I think it did a lot of harm um, to the credibility and the seriousness with which we took this issue. And I think it's right that we're going back and reexamining it right now. Do you think Clinton should have been permitted to continue in office? Oh, gosh, that's a really hard question. I don't know. I don't know the answer. Do you? I, I, I struggle Do you? with this. Ezra, so I'm really curious. I don't. No, I don't. Um, but but here's the one place where I struggle. Yeah. I think Clinton should have resigned. Yeah. And I think the Democratic Party should have forced him to resign um, to the extent it can. The tricky thing is, and it's funny, I'm doing for other reasons a lot of work on impeachment and its historical dimensions, mm-hmm. um, just randomly, not, not apropos of anything. Um, uh the perjury charge was completely trumped up. Right. And so on the one hand, I don't believe that he should have been impeached on the charges Republicans brought against him. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, I believe his abuse of power. And I said this before. Actually, oddly enough, the first episode of this podcast was with Rachel Maddow. And um, I asked her to, to, to say an opinion she holds that other people think is wrong. And she said that, that Clinton should have resigned. And, and I was like, yes, that's also one of my unusual opinions. Mm-hmm. It. It was only later when I began to get into politics and I looked back at that story because, you know, I didn't pay that much attention. I was I was young that I was just really shocked. Mm-hmm. I didn't know anything about the Juanita Broderick stuff actually until Dylan right. Matthews did an explainer on it a, a couple of years ago. Right. But it, Lewinsky, 
I mean, it's just such an extraordinary and immoral abuse of power that I, I, I don't know. I, I found it very, I'm kind of moralistic. I found it very shocking. The question I think, and this is actually what my other impeachment piece is about, is it isn't clear to me there's a good remedy for that kind of thing. Right. Um, impeachment tends to be a remedy for criminality. It doesn't have to be, but it, it tends to be. And so there, while I think Clinton should have resigned, and I think the way to get him to resign would have been for the Democratic Party to basically abandon its support of him. Right. Um, it isn't, uh, by the same token, I'm not sure I believe that the impeachment proceeding should have succeeded. So that's my somewhat complicated opinion on this. Let me say this. One thing I've always, you know, I've done a lot of writing about Hillary Clinton in my life. And and one of the reasons I've always found her so compelling and such a fascinating subject is because, you know, in the context of women's history, her life and career is such a bridge spanning such a changed landscape, especially for women of her race and class. Um, you know, she's born in an era in which um, certain things are not possible for women. And when and she eventually runs for president twice in an era that is in a totally different world. And I think she's very much a figure who is caught right in between and often crunched up by by the swiftness of the change. Now, I have actually sort of written and thought much less about Bill Clinton um, than I have about Hillary Clinton. But thinking about this and uh, the degree to which um, the Lewinsky things leads us to ask these kind of questions about um, should he have resigned, I think also about how he is in some ways caught in the same bridge. I mean, the norm of abuse and sexual harassment and abuse for politicians. I mean, look, I just mentioned Ted Kennedy, um, you know, John Kennedy. Uh, yeah. we're, we've heard stories in the past couple of weeks, and some of them have been kind of questionable, and then others pretty compelling about George H.W. Bush. Look at the story about Roy Moore that's happening this week. The, the sexual abuses of white male politicians this is the history of the United States. I mean, I, I remember sort of joking, you know, if you could look at Franklin Roosevelt, I mean, the sort of bad Watch sexual Watch Mad behavior. Men. It was a very popular television show. Right. <laughs> I mean, this is, in some ways, Bill Clinton wasn't behaving any differently than his presidential forebears and his political forebears, a, a huge percentage of them, right? It's impossible to know. And yet, he's doing it in a moment where the world has changed. And in his case, it's just changed in part because he's following on the heels of Anita Hill's testimony where we're thinking about this in a new way. And I think that that's not a defense. It's just trying to think about where he was in terms of how that conversation was evolving. Um, because his behavior with the White House intern, I don't think differentiates him from any number of other presidents who've come before. But he was doing it in a moment where we understood it in a new way to be a, a violation. What I think is so interesting about that, and it's something you brought up earlier with Anita Hill, is to think about the way in which our conceptual architecture of what is wrong and what is right was changing in this period. And, and how Clinton – and I want to put Juanita Broderick to the side of this because right. to the extent that if that story is true, rape is – rape was always wrong. Right. Um, but – Although not Anita always, Hill, although people didn't always face repercussion for it. 
That's fair. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Right. Um, I just mean in this period that right. it, it was right. it, that was not, I think, a moral gray area. Um, but so Anita Hill creates this idea and, and creates more of a reckoning with the idea of workplace sexual harassment, harassment from somebody who is your superior down to you. Um, and, and so people say, OK, that's that kind of coercive, unwanted sexual attention, you know, from somebody with power over you. That's really wrong. And even though Clarence Thomas doesn't actually uh, end up paying the price for it, as you say, I, I, it creates more of an understanding of it in the culture. And then Clinton comes in his defense with Lewinsky is well, it's consensual, right? It doesn't mm-hmm. fall afoul of what we're talking about with the Anita Hill, with the Anita Hill story. And so he like stays one step ahead of that. And then I actually I wonder if not if partly because of Lewinsky, but but certainly for other reasons too. Subsequently, I think we've come to understand that there are abuses of power even within consensual relationships. Right. That is a relatively new understanding, and it's also it's a it's tied to a, a argument that's been had within feminism for a long time. Because the other element of this the conversation about Lewinsky that I think left feminists slightly tied up at the time is that there's also a desire to to present the the woman, the adult woman in this case, right? Because there's it is true that she is at a massive power disadvantage and much younger um, than Bill Clinton. But there's also a desire, uh, some strain of feminism wants to point out, look, this is an adult woman with sexual desire and autonomy capable of making active choices about her life. And that gets into this question that has, you know, been a part of feminism for a long time, Um about protectionist versus liberationist feminism. You know, do you want, is the argument about women's ability to feel and act on their their own sexual desires and to be, um, and to be active agents, is that at odds with the need to also protect those who are at a power disadvantage, who in professional spheres are very often women? Those are conflicting arguments that and, there, you know, there's not always peace, you know, <laughs> between them. And I think that the Lewinsky story is another instance in which that those kind of conflicting impulses um, were at odds. One of the things that I think this raises as a question is how to think about this period in terms of reevaluation, right? How to think about this period, not just in terms of going forward or abuses that are way over the line like Weinstein. But in terms of thinking back to something somebody did 20 years ago, 30 years ago, when some of the societal judgment around this, when our our, our moral architecture, our conceptual architecture around it was not necessarily what it is now. I, I'm really struck by how many of these stories um, that, that we're hearing are about things that happened back in the day. I mean, there is currently, like literally as we speak, we published on, on Box Today a reevaluation of Bill Clinton by, by Matt Iglesias. Um, but, you know, the, the Leon Weaseltier stories, for instance, mm-hmm. uh, of the New Republic are about things that in many cases happened, you know, 10 years ago or, 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 or even more. Uh, the, the Toback stories are, you know, happened quite a bit of time ago, many of them at least. And some of these are way over the line. Again, some of these stories include rape or they include, you know, clear workplace power, sexual harassment. And some of them include things that at that time you can understand how with a certain amount of self-delusion and male privilege, the the guy didn't think that he was doing anything all that out of, of the ordinary. And maybe the people around him didn't think that either. And that's why he was protected. And now there is this question of how much do we hold people accountable in the present using our present 
understanding of what is right and wrong and appropriate for things that they did 15 years ago. Right. And I don't have answers for that. This is one of the things I puzzle over myself, right alongside the question of what do we do with the art they've made, you know, um, and and look, we revere in this country. I mean, many people revere the sort of the founding story, the founding fathers. Look at Thomas Jefferson. It's I, I believe that we have now engaged in a reckoning with Thomas Jefferson as a figure who raped an enslaved young woman and produced children with her. We have now, but that's, you know, that's relatively recent in our national story that we've actually reckoned with that. And I seem to remember that even within the past three months, I saw an argument um, over some place that was telling the story of Thomas Jefferson and Sally Hemings as an affair, you know. Um, what do we do? Again, I mean, this is my point about looking at Bill Clinton as the person who was in power at the moment that the light got turned on, right? And we said, oh, wait a minute, we're understanding this in a new way. But how does it differentiate him from what had been what had been done by so many of his forebears and his peers, his generational peers, and in fact, by many who've come after him, not necessarily in the White House, but, um, you know, in, in politics. And I don't I don't know the answer. I think I mean, my my impulse is always toward um, constant exposure and acknowledgement. Um, I see a value in always making sure that you include it in the conversation. Um, that you, it's not so much about um, damning or forgiving anyone retroactively. I mean, there it's different. It depends on uh, James Toback and Harvey Weinstein. Should Harvey Weinstein be prosecuted? Yes. It seems to me, based on what I've read, that he has committed crimes, a steady stream of likely crimes. And so that kind of retrospective reckoning seems pretty straightforward. And I know that there are, you know, possibly rape cases that are being investigated in cities all around the world against Harvey Weinstein. That's a kind of a fairly clear cut example of what can you do now, looking back on years of these claims that had been silent until now. Um, those that fall within the statute of limitations, you know, are should be criminally considered. The other the other cases that you mention, you know, what do we do? What do you do? What do you do with with Louis C.K.? Mm-hmm. Um, what do you do with the journalism of Mark Halperin? I mean, this is a story that that this is something that I've been very interested in because I'm, you know, as somebody who wrote a lot about Hillary Clinton, and I know you did too. It's always been very interesting to me who got to have the sort of most public and powerful role in shaping her story and the view of her. And Mark Halpern is certainly somebody who who has a claim to that. He wrote Game Change about the 2008 election. Um, he's an extremely prominent journalist who, who um, had a huge role in shaping the public's perception about Hillary Clinton. So for that matter, did Roger Ailes and Bill O'Reilly at Fox News. And they 
are people who um, probably, as much as anyone else, shaped an entire the right's view of her <laughs> villainy and treachery, um, and a- actually a view of her as someone who was a- an abuser of power. And all three of those guys have now been revealed, and in some cases they had been revealed previously and no one had bothered to care, um, as people who committed their own really vile abuses of sexual power. Um, Serially, apparently. But their voices helped determine the narrative that was accepted about this figure who, and there are many, many things to say about her, was a historic first in the United States. Was a woman who... um, you know, the, the first woman to be nominated by a major party for the presidency. And it was these guys who had a huge role in telling America what to think about her. That matters. We have to reevaluate all the things that, you know, and and it's in so many different directions and from so many angles and on so many, because one of the big revelations of the past six weeks, and it's not a revelation to lots of us who've been living it, but seeing it written about this way, is that it's not just individual stories. It is the framework of women's participation in a public sphere, professional, Mm -hmm. political, economic. Um, It is ubiquitous, pervasive. And reckoning with what that means, not just about the individuals, not just about Halpern or Clinton, Bill or Hillary, you know, not just about Anita Hill or Clarence Thomas or Harvey Weinstein. but also reckoning with what that means in all the workplaces we don't hear enough about, in in restaurants and casinos and nursing homes and uh, and grocery stores and retail chains and warehouses and factories. How do we actually reevaluate gender inequity in this country in a way that seems finally where the inequities seem structurally visible by some measures for the first time? I, I wrote a, a profile of Hillary Clinton during the, the campaign, and the thing I was trying to understand in that profile, because I'd not actually done that much reporting on her previously. I mean, I'd, I'd covered the 2008 election, but I wasn't at a point in that election where I got to interview <laughs> presidential candidates and, and, and things like that. So I had not dealt with her much personally uh, at all, really. And there was this really, really big difference between the person I saw on my television screen, mm-hmm. the person I could follow through a news story about about campaigning, and the person who was described to me by people who worked with her. And, and so I, I did this big piece and, and interviewed dozens and dozens of people who'd worked with her at every level in her entire career, going all the way back to Arkansas and even back to college. And the thing I really came away believing was that we have incredibly male gendered views of what leadership is. Mm-hmm. That the fact that every campaign ever, had, every presidential campaign ever has been won by a man and until Clinton, the two major party nominees had been men, that in ways we didn't even know how to express, that structured what we thought campaigning should be. That the idea of a listening tour is like just the opposite of what you do. Campaigning is a speaking tour. It's a standing in front of a room, confidently talking to a lot of people speaking tour. And that I think actually a lot of the criticisms of Clinton are are very valid criticisms. Mm -hmm. But the thing that I think is true about her is that we were not able to clearly see her strengths because they're not strengths that we actually have 
the architecture to, to, to appreciate and to surface in American life. What we have is an architecture built around appreciating very stereotypically male strengths. And they are strengths that some women have too, but that that did a tremendous amount of damage to her. And, and so to the larger point you're making, one of the, the, the fundamentals of all this is that for all the concern about what is happening to men now and, and, and you know, will some of these men be able to clamber back, nothing's ever going to get paid back. I mean, all no. the women who didn't get positions or who got right. sexually harassed and who got driven out of industries or even Hillary Clinton, who I think got a pretty raw deal, mm -hmm. there's not going to be justice. There's not going to be no. – nobody ever gets made whole here. No, and I, I, I've written that. I mean, I've said we're never going to be able to go back and, and hear the story of Hillary Clinton's candidacies, you know, told by – of a Mark Halperin or a, or another writer who would have filled Halperin's role, who is not accused of having pushed his penis into female subordinates. You know what I mean? This is a um, we don't get to do that. We don't get to go back and have look at the workplace. I mean, I, I think about this. There's so much talk. I write about feminism um, very often. Of course, people talk about the the pay gaps, the wage gaps, gendered wage gaps, which, of course, are even steeper for women of color, for black and Latina women um, when compared against white men, or about paid leave policy or subsidized child care. Whenever we have talks about economic policy, um, everybody always points out there's, you know, when there's sort of partisan argument, oh, but women are in lower paying fields, women choose more flexible jobs. This is, their, you know, the argument against all of these kinds of um, metrics of inequity is, oh, well, women make these choices. Well, this conversation, and, and it's something that lots of us have known for a long time, but until there was a sort of everybody being able to open their eyes and go, oh, my God, I see it. Like you're looking at one of those 3D portraits in the mall. Until you can see the systemic impact of how unfriendly to women these workplaces have been. And that's part of what is the curtains being rolled up on here, right? Um, it, that so much of women's participation in fields that are dominated by men, which of course are all the highest paying and most prestigious fields, and and fields, you know, where men wield power, which is even in tipped industries, which where there are more women workers, but men are more likely to be customers um, or clients. I, that the degree of um, hostility, harassment, um, assault that women have to work around uh, every day in every field contributes to the kinds of choices they then make. Um, there's this really fascinating study, and there hasn't been, I, I now know, there hasn't been enough um, study of the impact of, of this sort of cultural culture of sexual harassment and assault um, on women's workforce participation. But there is a study that was just done recently by a researcher who found that 50% of women who experience assault leave their jobs within two years of experiencing that assault. And when the assault, or, or I'm sorry, harassment, and when the harassment is particularly grave, that's 80%. And many of them leave their professions altogether. So this point, which is really powerful to me, and I think we should be looking at our whole world and thinking about it, <laughs> that we don't have the buildings that were built by women or the or the food that was cooked by women or the comedy that was written and performed by women or would have been, the art that would have been made by women, the books that would have been made by women, the political narrative that would have been told by women and the and the 
candidates and politicians and political leadership that should have been female. We can't go. We, we, we can't imagine what the world would have looked like if this systemic behavior hadn't been in place. And yeah, the question now sorry. about how to reverse it is a massive one. This has been what every, you know, like those of us who care about talking about pushing toward um, gender inequity in concert, of course, with um, sort of racial and, and sexual and, and class equality. All these things are, are interwoven and, and you can't just pull them apart. Um, you know, this is what we talk about. But it's fascinating. One of this is a, a sort of pet thing, a pet interest of mine, is how the power dynamics, when those who have been marginalized threaten in some way, power is supposed to go in one direction and power abuses or, or mm, not abuses, but power is supposed to flow in one direction from the very powerful to the less powerful. When the less powerful threaten in almost any way you can conceive of, they are immediately framed as more powerful, aggressive, and abusive. And I can give you a bunch of examples. Hillary Clinton's a great one. We can start there. Hillary Clinton is, is the first woman to be a major party nominee for the presidency. Hun- hundreds of women have actually run for the presidency before Hillary Clinton. The one who got the closest is Shirley Chisholm in 1972. But no one has ever gotten as close as Hillary Clinton did in 2008, where she came very close to beating Barack Obama in the in the primary. And then, of course, she did win the primary in in 2016. Think about the way that makes her now she is by many measures. And in fact, the way she gets to be the first woman to have this kind of political power in this position is because she has to sort of overcome a lot of the barriers that, for example, Chisholm complained about not being able to get to get Democratic Party establishment support to raise money, to have a huge war chest. So by those measures, she's very powerful. She clears the field. Um, You just wrote about this. She clears the field um, of other candidates who might have threatened her. Um, Bernie Sanders comes in and and does seriously threaten her. She is powerful, but she is an ultimate outsider. In this country that is 51 percent female, we have never had a female president. By that measure, which is a pretty stark one, she's an outsider. But she is cast during that election by her by her primary opponent, Bernie Sanders, as a member of the establishment. I mean, that was the line. She's the establishment. And the the groups that are supporting her, NARAL, Planned Parenthood, they are the establishment. Um, Groups that in their, you know, as far as their purpose, it's to defend um, sort of reproductive autonomy for women, Um, you know, sort of defend a, a a group um, that is constantly under assault <laughs> um, and a set of rights that are constantly under assault. But all of those figures are cast in the primary as the establishment. Not only that, she wins the primary, but we are still having a conversation about whether the system is rigged in her favor, right? The idea that, that she was so powerful that she rigged it in her favor is the way we can comfortably talk about that on the left. And of course, even though she loses to Donald Trump, even though, you know, it couldn't be more rigged against her in the general election in that she wins three million more votes and still isn't the president of the United States. And yet Donald Trump also still talks about her as if she's the aggressor. She's the one, you know, the the popular vote was rigged. 
So there's this view of the person who, in many ways, has less power. Um, And again, there are all kinds of arguments to be had about that. But by many stark measures is the outsider being viewed as the bully who's rigging it all in her favor. And you can see that in the way that people talk about the sexual harassment conversation, that it's a witch hunt. And this is the thing that I am kind of um, obsessively thinking about. about um, you can see it, for example, around the conversation about um, police violence and, and criminal justice reform, Black Lives Matter. Uh, I wrote about this once a couple years ago in the wake of the Baltimore riots that happened um, in response to Freddie Gray's death. And there were all kinds of stories at the time after there were riots in Baltimore, small ones, small disturbances, um, that talked about when the violence started. The violence started when somebody picked up a stone and threw it. And they didn't consider that the violence started when Freddie Gray was dragged violently into a police van and died from his injuries, which is an, an obviously violent act. The way that he was dragged, the way that he was injured. But when, but when it was happening in the configuration where the powerful was enact the where power was enacting violence on a less powerful figure it wasn't discernible as disruptive violence that was the way it was supposed to work mm-hmm. but when somebody picked up a rock because they were angry about that violence and threw it then it was the violence started the violence started with the mob the violence started with, and you can see that in the way that black lives matter protests which are themselves a response to violence They are a response to the killing of black men by a white state. That is violence. And and yet it's the protests, it's the objection to that violence that is comfortably um, written about as disruptive and threatening, of course, by people who are threatened by a Black Lives Matter movement who see that movement as dangerous or, you know, or worry about riots and the violence of protests. And there's no acknowledgement that the violence actually begins with the powerful enacting violence on the on the not powerful. And the same thing is true as we talk about um, the sexual harassment stories and the conversation turns and we will see this happen, I believe, even more intensely in coming weeks because I, I do fear and fully believe that a backlash to this moment of exposure in this conversation um, is imminent, we will see the women who are making claims reimagined, and we already have in the conversations about witch hunts and the poor men who are losing their jobs, um, the women as the aggressors, the mob, the angry mob with the torches. Um, and you could, Mar- Mike Barnacle spoke about Mark Halperin um, losing his job at MSNBC and losing his deal with HBO, again, in the wake of accusations that he rubbed his penis against younger female co-workers when he had power over them in offices. When Mike Barnacle, his friend, talks about the fact that Halperin has suffered consequences for this, he says, you can't, how many, how many times does a guy have to die? You can't, you, should he die? Should he be killed? He hasn't been killed. But the very fact that he suffered any repercussion for what, what is, if true, if the allegations are true, criminal behavior in the workplace, the fact that he suffered a repercussion for that is equal to a death, to violence. 
So justice, if it's working in reverse to um, diminish the power of the powerful, is can be very comfortably viewed as as aggressive violence. So let's go back to, to Clinton and rigging, because I've been doing a lot of work on that. I've been thinking about it a lot. Mm-hmm. And I think it's really interesting. Um, one thing that is a dynamic here is that when marginalized classes attempt to take power, they often have to do it in unusual ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the, the normal channels are blocked to them or, or not fully present to them, or maybe they just don't have the normal characteristics we associate. So go, going back to Clinton, she has tremendous political skills, but they're not giving charismatic speeches. Mm-hmm. They're building coalitions, they're winning over allies, they're raising money. I mean, these are very real political talents but they're not the traditionally male set of political talents. And so in this sort of way of being twice as good to get to get these things done, and you saw a bit of it with Obama, where he was so good at giving speeches that it became celebrity Obama, Hollywood Obama, right? That there was yes. all sizzle, no steak was the argument made there, but, but he was able to overcome that. But with Clinton, what she did was in order to, to be the first women to, to, to win a, a major party nomination – she locked up the party in a way that a non-incumbent or non-vice president never has. We've right. never seen as dominant a frontrunner as Hillary Clinton was, including right. in 2008. Right. And then people look at that and they say, well, the primary's rigged. The entire Democratic establishment has cleared the field. It has coalesced around her. Nobody else can raise money. Nobody else can be heard. And God, doesn't that feel unfair? Hmm. And that was, I, I really think, that was what she had to do. I mean, yes. and and it's what other men have done, just not as successfully. But finally, she does it. And then people say, this felt rigged. It right. felt unfair. It right. felt like there was no room for anyone else to come out. But if you have a campaigning structure that is built to advantage male forms of campaigning, and then as a woman, you 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 use a more traditionally feminine style of power accumulation, right? You build these great coalitions, you you work through relationships, you do all these things. And then people look at that and they say, that's unusual. And it's why I love your word discernible so much. Mm. There is so much that men do in politics that is not discernible. No, because um, it is politics. Because it Our is politics. politics is so what coded we define male. Mm-hmm. Um, and when Clinton did it, it was incredibly discernible to people. All of a sudden, you know, this feeling of the elites coming together and the party deciding it was much too much. And it's left these very very uh, hurt feelings in the Democratic Party. The, the, the Freddie Gray example you give is also a tremendous one. When the police use that power, it's not discernible. It's the police doing what police do. Right. When protesters mass and somebody throws a rock, it's very discernible. It, it, it's outrageous. It's revolutionary. It's because it's disruptive. it's disruptive to the power structure. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, one of the things it's, I, I also want to sort of in thinking about Clinton and her approach, one of the things that has become clear to me writing on it and and then looking at it in retrospect is how many avenues were of of traditional male politicking were cut off to her um sort of expressive you know we we absorb this notion that Hillary Clinton was not a great speaker and it's true right she's not a great public speaker but we also don't think, again, about how we define public speaking. So one of the things people always said about her and that I certainly found was true when I reported on her on the trail is that she's in, in small settings, in conversational settings, she's kind of magnificent, right? Mm-hmm. When she talks one-on-one with people, um, she's so persuasive, people love her. 
Um, it's totally at odds with the with the you know greater public persona in which she's like cold and mean and horrible and a witch, um, and can't connect to people and is a robot and all that stuff. That is just if you see her in a group setting, um, you know, a town hall you know, a small, you know, the kind of events, the small events she had, uh, you know, at, at thousands of places all over the country. Um, she's really talented at conversation. And she's talented um, at doing the the stuff that we just automatically think is so boring, at laying out the policy, right? She, I mean, I remember watching her at a, at an event at a daycare center um, in Kentucky, where she was explaining the relationship between how you want to you want to begin to subsidize daycare, but you have to do it at the same time that you raise the wages of caregivers and all the reasons why you have to raise wages of caregivers in order to, you know, to create sustainable care networks that are reliable for the people who rely on them. And it was kind of magnificent. Um, but it was so divorced from what we understand, as you say, as politics, as persuasive politics, because what we understand to be persuasive politics is some like gut punch slogan um, and some some loudly voiced promise. But here's the thing Hillary Clinton couldn't do was say anything in a loud voice or punch anybody in a gut. Um, and I don't mean just that she wasn't herself naturally built to do that, though that happens to be true. And there's a kind of... Um, there's a process of self-selection, like how did she get to be the, f- the first candidate, right? She wasn't, she's not built to sort of like scream an unrealistic promise. But it's also just logistically true that she couldn't scream into a microphone. She couldn't, when she did, when she talked too loudly, you know, a hundred prominent people wrote tweets about how she should stop yelling. And let me say, it's not just them. I would recoil on my couch because we are trained in addition to understanding the politics in a in a way that is just not it's not even coded male it's just male it's just men you know um we also are supposed to understand women and we receive women's voices that are raised too loud to be repellent to us and that was a crazy dynamic in a in an election where she was running against bernie sanders and donald trump mm-hmm. bernie sanders yelled and pointed his finger and he called for revolution it was, and I said this during the primary, and it's so true to me now. And I didn't think about it, and it just sort of makes my head pop off. We can barely imagine a woman running for president in this country. It's so disruptive. We cannot conceive of a woman who runs successfully for president and has stadiums full of people cheering for her because she is promising a revolution. Women who call for revolution in this country are marginalized. They are radical figures. They are not anybody who can plausibly lay claim to a presidential nomination. That that whole mode of communication is cut off for Hillary Clinton. And she's done a lot of writing now about that, um, you know, the impulse, her calculations. And, and when I profiled her after the election this past spring, um, she talked to me about the calculations she'd been doing in her head when Donald Trump, in the debate, when Donald Trump was actually following her in a kind of sort of grotesque and predatory way on stage, you know, sort of looming behind her, breathing heavily. And and it was a terribly discomforting dynamic to watch as an audience as well. And and she talked about how discomforting it was for her, but that the internal calculations she was doing, can I turn around and tell this guy to back off? 
But she was understanding what all, the kind of things that all women, and this returns us to the conversation about sexual harassment and how and and a, an assault, and how it's not always in the action that we're judged. It's not just about the harm done by somebody grabbing our ass or groping us at a company retreat or propositioning us at work. That's not where it ends. It's how we react that that helps to determine our professional fate. And that's an element that is, really gets left out of this discussion of sexual harassment. Yes, there may be harm and damage done by the sort of diminution and degradation of, you know, what these men do when they when they grab us or harass us or assault us. But there is also the harm done depending on how we choose to react. Do we, do we laugh it off? Does that make us complicit in them doing it to us again or to someone else in the future? Do we lodge a complaint? Does that marginalize us at work? Does that make us unlikable? Does that make us the humorless woman in the office who's unlikely to be asked to go on the work trip that would gain her more professional status? What does Hillary Clinton do when Donald Trump stands behind her and breathes heavily and kind of paws the ground? What does she do? And she described very powerfully um, the calculations in her head. If I turn around and yell at him and tell him to back off, it's going to redound negatively to me. I have been a woman in the world long enough to understand that if I turn around and yell at him, I'm going to I'm going to pay the price for it. And I think that is a real insight into the kind of um energy, thinking, labor that women are doing all the time and then that that's part of this conversation about how pervasive and ubiquitous harassment is that it's not just about the act. It is also about the calculations we're constantly doing about how we're supposed to be responding to those kinds of power abuses and the impact that our that how we react, how we respond has on our professional future and our and our standing. I want to go back to to something you said about the ubiquity here and the because there's a, a remarkable comment where you said that that you would listen to Clinton speak loudly into a microphone and you would recoil on your couch and sure. and anecdotally something that that I noticed quite a bit during the campaign was that the most vicious re- reactions I heard to Hillary Clinton personally were from older women in my life. Mm. Um, they had the most they a lot of them just couldn't stand her. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I don't want to say it's everybody, and I've not like right. I, I know Clinton lost older voters, but I don't know, you know, if she lost older women. So I, I'm not in any way saying it's everybody. But something that you know you'll often hear is that, well, it can't be sexism here because, look, she basically didn't win any more women than Barack Obama did. Or you were talking about the story of Clinton being written by men. But but there are women who have written it too. And, and one who comes to mind who I think really has hated or has had a very negative reaction to Clinton over the years is Maureen Dowd, mm-hmm. who Absolutely. has looked at her and, and seen something she really didn't like on a pretty on a pretty visceral level. And that has always struck me as a very complicated piece of all this, that – it isn't just so easy as, okay, there are these misogynistic men and they have all the power. And if you just get them out, that, that, then it's fine. That there are these ideas of what the world should look like encoded pretty deeply into all of us. But that's what it means to have the world made by men, by white men. Right. And it's not just it, – look, this is how minority rule works. I mean this is a topic I'm obsessed by and thinking about the way that these systems are in place. If you consider sort of white men as the minority, and I mean, I think fairly, um, the minority that has had a pretty exclusive grip 
on political, professional, economic, social, and sexual power in this country for all of this country's history. How does that, that is, it's a case of minority rule. How does that work? Women are the majority. How does minority rule persist? In part, you divide the majority against itself. And you, you're never going to get minority rule if you don't have some significant segment of the majority. Now, this is, there are a whole bunch of, of different different aspects to this. I'm talking in the very, this, I, I, and here, actually, I probably am talking more about the question of white women um, voting Republican um, and voting for Donald Trump. Um, you know, there are ways in which a majority divides itself and part of it works to support the power structure in, that's in place, in part because they're deriving benefits from that power structure. Now, when it comes to the older women and, and in many cases, feminists, who have very mixed feelings about Clinton. There, that's a much more complicated story. But there's at least some of it, and I see it in an age divide that I noted in my piece about sexual harassment and the post-Weinstein conversation. I have had lots of conversations with older women, um, very left-leaning women, one of whom said to me the other day, like, oh, I know I sound like an, a reactionary, but I just can't help thinking, like, oh, come on, so he touched you. You know, sort of, um, that's not emblematic, certainly, of the way that all older women are are talking but but i have certainly gotten more resistance to this to the idea that this is a necessary reckoning that we're doing um, and that there's it's a fundamentally righteous project i have certainly gotten more re- resistance to that idea from a generation of women who came of age and and if they were in the workforce, began in the workforce in an era in which this kind of behavior was just an accepted reality. It was pre-Anita Hill. It was before. It was um, sort of acknowledged as uh, a kind of behavior that was fundamentally damaging and unjust. And they worked their way through workplaces around this kind of behavior in a million different ways. And I think that there's a lot of there are a lot of impulses at work when some of them now are saying like, oh, come on, isn't this a little much? Or what did these young women expect? This is reality. And I think that some of those same attitudes are in play. These are women who've, who entered workforces in which women were, <laughs> in which figures like Hillary Clinton were problematic too, you know? And if she yelled too loud, it's like, you're not supposed to yell that loud. Like you're not gonna, you're gonna make us all look bad. You know, Um, and that's a lot of the there's a lot of over identification. um, And this is something I've written about in the past, uh, you know, amongst women of Hillary's generation. Many of them have all kinds of resentments because they identify working women who identified so strongly with her. But then were either mad because she didn't leave her husband in the wake of Lewinsky or because she moved her politics more more to the center in the Senate or because of, you know, I I certainly hear more criticism of how Hillary Clinton dresses from older women than I do from younger women. Um, And I just think that the reality of having lived through the same history that Hillary has lived through alters your perception of what is possible and what should be possible um, in ways that dramatically shift your perception of this this one figure, this avatar, but also shift your perception about whether or not we should be having these conversations in the way that we're having them about sexual harassment and assault. Um, and I think it's in part because young women came into the workforce with higher expectations. Younger women came into the workforce with higher expectations about what was supposed to be um, 
a realm in which they started on more equal footing. And, you know, all this stuff is incredibly complicated. But it is also true that the easy line, which is that for sexism to be sexism, it can only, you know, that if a woman says that it can't be sexist is bananas. Um, Women must be participants (laughs) um, in the kind of um, structures that... Uh, leave women with less power with less power. If women didn't participate, we wouldn't have a patriarchy. If women all forced to participate in these kinds of double standards and and harsher judgments, patriarchy wouldn't exist because women are the majority. You have a line at the end of your most recent piece that I've been thinking a bit about where you write that the only real solution may be one that is hardest to envision, equality. And, and I'd like to talk about what is hard to envision about equality. When when you write that, what what are you thinking of? I'm thinking that we're so far from it. I mean, and this is the lie that we've been sold for decades, that we're in a post-feminist world. Um, we've had, hey, we've had a woman who was almost the president. <laughs> what more do we want? Uh you know, this notion and and it's sold to us regularly by people on the right and the left that women have made such gains, and they have, though you know, often white women and white middle and upper class women have made such tremendous gains um, over the past few decades um, that we have essentially, by many measures, solved the problem of gender inequity. And we must turn as if they're separate questions to economic inequality, right? They're, of course, completely bound up with each other. There's no conversation about economic inequality that is not also about gender and racial inequality. Um, but that's often how we're told that the that the women stuff, the, women's, the women are the establishment, right? Where it's Hillary Clinton and NARAL and Planned Parenthood. That's the establishment. And um, we shouldn't be worrying anymore about this stuff or obsessing about it. Um, but in fact, we are so far from being able to envision a world in which women have half of the power. that That's why I say it's sort of the hardest thing to envision. And the process of getting there, I mean, actually, politics is one of the realms where it's almost easiest to envision it happening quickly, even though it's been several hundred years and it hasn't really happened quickly. Um, you can have individual years, individual elections, where m- women make huge gains. 92 is an example of that this past you know, just a couple weeks ago, um, is an example of women sort of storming into office. But that's because politics is structurally the kind of thing you can enter. You can have you can have really any kind of history and conceive of running for office. It may work. It may not work. There are things that are lined up against you, especially when it comes to women and women of color, um, issues of fundraising and support and getting the support of your party. And all those things remain challenges. But theoretically, you can be an office manager, you can be, you can have been a stay-at-home mom, you can be um, a young person who doesn't have a lengthy career, and you can run for office, run for local office. Uh, But in other professions that are built on training, seniority, and where the power structures remain terrifically male, you're looking at years of altering behavior and patterns, of changing the kinds of economic policies, of enacting equal pay protections and and paid leave protections, and um, and changing the cultures and the ways that we're talking about around harassment, um, but also in terms of the way I write in the piece about how 
it's it's deeper excavation than that. It's about how we perceive men and women. I write in the piece about how one of the reasons that I imagine a lot of these, even some of the worst offenders in the sexual harassment cases, will eventually redeem themselves or be redeemed professionally or culturally is because we are still conditioned to be able to recognize talent and ability in men, even beyond um, their shortcomings or their or their crimes. We can still acknowledge that they're geniuses in some ways or that they have something to offer us professionally or publicly. And with women, I often feel it's just the reverse. Even if we can um, admire this, their successes or acknowledge... Um, their intelligence, at the end, there's this lingering question about their sexual aesthetic value and whether their successes can be attributed in some way um, to their to their aesthetic value. And um, rooting out those kinds of attitudes and changing them and altering them and totally changing the way we see men and women is the project that's ahead of us. If we can if we ever want to begin to envision a place, a, a, a world in which we have anything resembling equality. And of course, right now, structurally, we're incredibly disadvantaged. And I'm speaking politically here. We have the kinds of um, policy and legal protections that we need to do the logistical work of that, that, you know, in an ideal world might lead to changes in attitude, culture, and perception. We're totally disabled right now because Donald Trump is the president, and he's making lifetime appointments to to the courts, and, and he's not staffing the agencies that are supposed to enact the protections against sexual harassment in the workplace. And Betsy DeVos is gutting Title IX protections. And there's very little hope at the moment of of paid leave legislation or equal pay protections, you know, or, or of I- improving our health care <laughs> legislation, the kinds of structural things and and systemic things and sort of nuts and bolts things that we can do to to build the the scaffolding under the kinds of changes in attitude we need to make to get closer to gendered and, of course, um, alongside it, racial inequity. To, to get closer to, to gendered and racial equality. So that's why I say it's daunting. But I also do believe it's the only solution. <laughs> One of the things there that that feels like a, a turn this conversation is trying to make and is going to have trouble making is there's a real difference between talking about individual people who have done wrong and structures. Right. And a real difference between talking about Things we can all admit are crimes or abuses and then broader cultures in which the gray area is tilted again systematically one group or another. You know, I, I think of our, of our sexual culture going way, way, way down the ladder from things like rape and Anita Hill style sexual harassment. But just the degree that we have a sexual culture that so to some degree expects but certainly rewards men for aggression and puts the burden of establishing non-consent for the most part on women. And I've been interested in these debates about affirmative consent laws, mm-hmm. which by no means would solve every problem. But people react very strongly to, to, to these ideas, and in part because I think it's very hard for folks to take the step and say, it's not just that we have bad apples. Those bad apples reflect a culture that is funneling people in this direction. Um, right. And that is that is systematically, you know, pushing men here and, 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 and putting these costs on women. Right. That's absolutely true. Um, 
Yeah, the degree to which, I mean, and this is something I also try sort of touch on in the piece, but the degree to which male bad behavior on these fronts, which is now being sort of exposed as, and, and, and I have somebody in the piece who talks about the hypocrisy of the companies and the, uh, you know, the people who are now jettisoning these guys, the, the very same institutions that rewarded them for this kind of behavior. Um, and, you know, the, the idea of sort of raw male, bad boy, machismo, retro, masculinist attitudes or whatever, um, we have to understand that that and that those kinds of attitudes and approach to sexual power and dominance that undergird so many of these sexual power abuses, that kind of behavior has been rewarded in workplaces. The guys who are viewed as the cads and the and the and the retro sexists, you know, to some degree. And I write a little bit in the um in my piece about Matt Taibbi, a, a progressive uh, journalist who's done really good work and most recently written, I think, uh, I haven't read it, but I've read the reviews. I think it sounds like an extremely important book about Eric Garner's death. But he made his name and his career on really sexist writing in Russia. And it's not just that, oh, now he has this totally different kind of set of opportunities to do really important progressive work. It's that he has those opportunities in part because he became famous as a sexist jerk who everybody thought that was fun and kind of daring and edgy. And, I mean, we can't we can't step away, and this is, you know, the conversations about who's complicit in all of this. You know, lots of us are complicit in appreciating, a ver- appreciating and often rewarding a version of masculinity that is extremely tied to the subordination of women. And this, I think, gets back to, to what I wanted to, to come to here towards the end, which is you said you're expecting a backlash. Mm-hmm. What form does it take? Oh, it's terrifying. I don't know. I mean, I've been expecting a backlash. <laughs> uh, uh, I've been expecting a backlash for a long time. I went during, I never was sure that Hillary Clinton was going to be elected president. I was never one of those people who was even particularly confident about it. But I did think for vast portions of 2016 that it was possible that she'd be elected. Um, and I expected a terrible backlash to that. Um, I was uh, very prepared and was planning, had she been elected, to write on that. I mean, I, I to write a book called sort of The Season of the Witch. And I um, had lots of conversations with people predicting that, you know, I, I, I see some backlashes to women's rise in power. This has nothing to do with Hillary Clinton, except insofar as she sort of symbolizes and stands in um, metaphorically for what I think is a... Um, perception that women are gaining all this threatening power. You know, we've done a lot of talking recently about the nature of mass shootings and who mass shooters tend to be. They tend to be um, men who have histories of domestic violence and aggression toward women. I think violent behavior toward women is part of a backlash. I think in the case of, I mean, I remember thinking about that with regard to the murder of Joe Cox in Britain, um, Last year, and I had a conversation uh, with a writer I, I like and respect so much, Brittany Cooper, who's at Rutgers, um, where she 
before the election, um, she and I were talking about what we anticipated to be a backlash should Hillary Clinton win the presidency. And and she sort of predict, predicted, she was like, I think you're going to see um, sort of violence against white women in a way that we don't really have a precedent for in this country. That was a, you know, a very grim prediction. But one I took very seriously, she happened to make it literally the day before, to me privately, literally the day before Joe Cox was killed in, in England, which is one of the reasons I remember that event and tie it in my mind to this idea of what forms anti-feminist backlash could take. Um, With regard to the sexual harassment stories, um, you're going to see a shutting down of this conversation initially, and anything can precipitate it, a false claim. I'm sure that the right wing will be looking to weaponize this conversation to um, seed false claims um, to make you know, with a number of different intents. Um, This is an era of fake news in which um, the idea of fake news is wielded as a weapon. I am sure that uh, that the right wing will be looking to dis- to, to sort of <laughs> create disarray um, in a progressive or feminist conversation about this by um, by seeding some false story and and landing someone you know with a demonstrably false accusation. I think an overreaction, um, you know, somebody a, a man who loses his, a powerful man who loses his job for an offense that perhaps doesn't merit job loss um, could put a halt to this. I think that there's a desire on the part of lots of people, and I'm not just talking about, um, and again, I, I include women, I include feminists in this. Like, this is a hard conversation to have. I am not particularly enjoying this, right? And I'm a feminist who believes this stuff needs to be talked about, talked about who finds some exhilaration in this, who thinks this is a crucial and eye-opening conversation, who sees the issues that I think and write about every day finally being discussed by people who I think have never gotten it before. There are all kinds of things about this discussion that are thrilling to me. Um, and I think crucial to our movement forward. At the same time, I am hating it. I hate it. It is horrible to live through this every day. It's horrible to be hearing these stories. I am getting so many messages every day from people telling me absolutely harrowing stories, staring straight at this stuff. We all, on some level, want it to end. And I am probably amongst those who are most invested in it not ending because I think it's so important that this stuff is exposed and understood, really, for the first time in my adult lifetime, um, perhaps for the first time, as fundamentally structural to gendered inequality in this country. And yet there's some part of me that would take comfort in this conversation not happening anymore. So imagine anybody without my sort of ideological and professional and personal investments in this subject matter and the desire that we all, that so many people have to like make this stop. It's painful. It's dredging up horrible memories for so many of us. It's confusing us in in our, where our sympathies are and who they're for and where they're supposed to be. It's a really hard conversation to have. And so I do think that Lots of people will jump on any excuse to make this conversation stop. Whether that excuse is a f- one false accusation or a corporate overreaction to an accusation or to an event, um, it, I anticipate there'll be a moment where everybody just sort of is like, okay, we're not having this conversation anymore. And then I believe will come some form of backlash. And it could take any, I mean, 
it can be in, you know, Susan Faludi wrote about the post-feminist backlash that extended over a period of like 15 to 20 years after second wave feminism and through the 80s and 90s and, you know, included everything from sort of pop cultural reimagining of women in um, traditional wifely and domestic and sexually subservient roles to the Reagan administration. I mean, it can take any form we can imagine. Um and, uh, you know, I can imagine plenty of directions in which the the punishment for having had this conversation is going to work itself out. By the same token, I, I want to say something optimistic, which is that even though I am anticipating and dreading the kinds of forms that that backlash is going to take, and I think even the backlash to this can, I mean, I, I worry also about violence. I do. Um, the anger at women for having prosecuted these points for having forced this exposure, the anger at women um, from men who are affected by it um, can be very intense. Who knows? Um, But all of that said, I also think that this moment will be transformative in the long term in the way that the Anita Hill conversation, which was shut down in no small part, perhaps, by the election of Bill Clinton, um, and certainly by the confirmation of of Clarence Thomas to the Supreme Court, even though it was shut down... um, in real time, it had a profound and long-lasting impact on our view of gender and power. And I suspect that this period is going to have that same long-lasting—not la- the same, but a, a relatedly long-lasting um, effect on how we see gender and power in this country, and that that is a good thing in the long term. But in the short term, I think it could be pretty brutal. Uh, a point of optimism is a good place to come to a close here. So let me end with the question we always ask. Uh, on these topics specifically, if you're listening to this and you're thinking, I actually don't know that I understand what equality would look like between genders. I don't know that I, I see this as structural as I should. What are three books you would recommend people read? Mm. Okay. So on a couple of the things we've touched on, I would say um, I think it's really important that people go back and read um, and, and and actually look at the Anita Hill moment. And the, the great book on that is called Strange Justice by Jill Abramson and Jane Mayer. So that's one. Um, there's a terrific book I have just read. It won't be published until February. I don't know if I'm allowed to do this, but on, on rage. It's by Brittany Cooper, who I actually cited earlier in this conversation, and it's called Eloquent Rage. Um, it's not going to be published. I happened to read it in Galley Forum, and it is it's brilliant on the topic of of women and rage and black women and rage. Um, <clears throat> the third book uh, I would recommend on this. <sighs> well, <laughs> I actually just learned a lot. It's I've read it very recently, so it's on my mind. I didn't know a lot, and we haven't talked about this in this in this conversation, but I didn't know enough as somebody who's written about um, feminism and women's history in the United States, actually about the very, very long campaign for suffrage. Um, Until very recently, I read uh, a book called One Woman, One Vote, which is edited by Marjorie Spruill. I learned so much about the length of time that social progress can take and the kind of many often ugly detours it can make. And so I strongly recommend that as a kind of primer on on the the extremely long social the extremely long-lasting social movement to win the vote for women in 1920 um, and of course win the vote for some women because black women in the south and Jim Crow states still weren't um, 
able to vote, um, meaning that that fight, you know, goes on another 45 years. Um, so I guess those are the three books that I would recommend. I'm sorry, one of them probably doesn't count because it's not yet published. But, you know, I think you can probably check it out on Amazon <laughs> at this point. It'll, it'll, it'll build it in anticipation and pre-orders. Um, Rebecca Traster, thank you so much. This was great. Thank you so much, Ezra. Thank you to Rebecca. Uh, that was really, really helpful for me. I hope you all enjoyed it too. Thank you as always to my producer, Jillian Weinberger. The Ezra Klein Show is a Vox Media Podcast Network production and we'll be back next week.